Section 1 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 3, December 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 3, December 1896. The Lost Rook Trail by Bert Leston Taylor. I was smoking an after-dinner pipe on the veranda of the One Too Many Hotel at Arrow, when I was accosted by a gentleman who had arrived the evening before on the stage from Colebrook. Is this Mr. Sam Gilkey? he asked. I pleaded guilty. The landlord of this illustrious inn tells me that you are the best guide to be found in this part of the country, said he. Well, sir, I replied, I have frequently noted in Mr. Bragg a passion for the exact truth that amounts almost to a disease. You don't talk like a guide, remarked my prospective employer, eyeing me curiously. That may be the fault of my education, said I, a little tartly. Are you afraid it would interfere with my duties? No, I guess I can stand it if you can, he observed, good-naturedly. I'll tell you what I require, he went on, handing me a cigar. First, a guide who knows thoroughly the country around here for fifteen or twenty miles. Second, a man, same man, who will not make remarks upon my method of fishing. Third, a man with grit enough to stand by me in any adventure that Providence may throw in my way. In reply, I stated that I knew like a book the country between the New Hampshire line and the Rangeleys, and as far north as the Canadian border, that any method of fishing he might select would have my approval, if not the flattery of imitation, and that my fidelity to an employer had yet to be questioned. "'Consider yourself engaged,' said he, and we took hands on it. "'Edward Atherton, Boston,' so the hotel register read, "'was a man of about thirty years, of medium height, slender of build, "'with small, aristocratic-looking hands and feet, "'dark brown hair and eyes, "'and a face in which was mirrored a kindly disposition and a light heart.' with all an expression of confidence and resolution, a suggestion of the grit he had asked for in me. He was unusually well-dressed, though without a trace of flashiness. Atherton informed me that his destination was Brown's Farm, ten miles up the Magalloway. As the log drive was not yet by, the little steamer that plied between Errol Dam and the Magalloway country was not in service. But my canoe was at the dam, and Atherton readily chose that method of locomotion in preference to the tedious drive over Arrow Hill. During the trip up the McGalloway, Atherton proved the most delightful sportsman that had ever engaged my services. He was possessed of a fund of capital stories, all humorously and gracefully told. Thus the hours sped quickly by, the lights of the few houses that comprise the settlement in the McGalloway plantation had been twinkling scarce five minutes 
when we swung around the last bend in our journey, and I beached the canoe at the foot of the slope on which stood the hotel. What? A piano in this wilderness? cried Atherton. I explained that there was a very good piano at the hotel. That is probably Miss Vaughan playing, said I. I brought her up from Errol yesterday. Gay gad, then, Miss Vaughan shall have an appreciative audience, said he. Hand me that flask and those cigars in my fishing coat. Chopin, or I'm a sinner, he murmured, stretching himself in the canoe and lighting a cigar. I'll swear that Chopin himself could not have desired more poetic surroundings amid which to listen to his lovely creations. I had never heard of Mr. Chopin and his creations, but I did find a peculiar sympathy between the music Miss Vaughan was making and the soft swish of the river round the bend, the miles of forest stretching away in the ghostly distance, and the giant peak across the narrow vale whose wooded slopes the rising moon was lighting. Miss Vaughan plays well, said Atherton presently, but there is no soul in her fingers. The only person that ever played that nocturne to my liking was a slip of a girl who, alone in a white mountain hotel parlor, entertained me unconsciously, as Miss Vaughan is now doing. I saw her but once afterwards, kicking in a comic opera chorus under the name of Polly Edwards. I'll warrant that the tender grace of a day that is dead has long since vanished from her piano fingers. By the way, who is this Miss Vaughan? Billy Vaughan's girl. She spends her summers here. Lives in Boston, I believe, during the winter. Vaughan, I infer, is the big man of the plantation? Well, he's big enough, I laughed. Stands six foot two in his hunting boots. He's a guide and trapper. Makes his headquarters here, but for excellent reasons, spends most of his time in the woods. Ah? Uh? The game warden shot his deer dog last summer. He shot the warden. Sort of evened things up. And the authorities? Had they nothing to say concerning the affair? They said all they could. Bill was indicted, but never caught. He's a good shot. And you might as well hunt for a needle in a stack as to try to run a man down in the main woods. Folks around here always give Bill a tip when the sheriff or any of his deputies are in the neighborhood. They don't like game wardens. Well, the concert is over, and we may as well hunt supper, remarked Atherton. We shouldered our traps and walked up the stretch to the hotel. The next morning, at breakfast... Atherton was introduced to Miss Inez Vaughan, a tall, well-shaped, and handsome girl, for whom I had long entertained a warm admiration, a praiseworthy sentiment which she never took the trouble of returning. Atherton was apparently more in her line. Before the forenoon was gone, they were the best of friends. She played about everything he asked for, a nocturne in this, a ballad in that, and a lot of other things that were Greek to me. When Miss Vaughan disappeared to dress for dinner, another compliment to my employer, as she was not in the habit of dazzling the natives with her toilettes, Atherton joined me in a smoke on the veranda. Samuel, said he, you're Miss Vaughan. My Miss Vaughan. 
is a very entertaining young lady, who has thoroughly captivated me by her charms. As I had not heard him speak ten consecutive words seriously, I accepted his enthusiasm for what it was worth. Yes, he went on, she is good-looking, she is bright, and decidedly intelligent, and her music alone entitles her to a degree from the University of Culture. But she is no more a part of these rustic environments than I am, and I regard it as strange that a young woman of her tastes and accomplishments should elect to bury herself for any considerable time in a wilderness that borders on the howling. I suggested that a natural interest in her father might lead a daughter to pass a few months each year in his neighborhood, and Atherton let it go at that. Far be it from me to complain, said he. Thanks to Miss Vaughan's geographical position, I expect to pass a very pleasant vacation. But I understood that you came up here to fish. And you also understood, he retorted, that there was to be no comment on my method of fishing. Very good, sir, I smiled. You are not going out today? I'm going out driving. You can fish if you want. After dinner, I strung my line and started off to see how the trout were biting. As I left the hotel, Atherton was handing Miss Vaughan into a carriage. After the rebuke I had received, good-natured though it was, I concluded to let Atherton find out for himself that he had a rival for the smiles of Miss Vaughan in Mr. Jack Carruthers of Boston whose appearance each summer at the farm usually followed closely upon Miss Vaughan's arrival. I surmised that he would put in an appearance before the week was out, and when I came up from the river at sundown, I was not surprised to find him on the hotel veranda, talking with Bill Vaughan. Vaughan was a splendid specimen of physical manhood, straight as a pine, despite his more than fifty years. His gait was lumbering, but it was the awkwardness of immense strength which showed in every movement of his huge frame. He was a taciturn man, and although I had summered and wintered with him, as the saying is, I never got very close to him. Since the game warden episode, I had seen very little of him. Carruthers I never fancied, though I had piloted him on more than one fishing trip, and he had given me no specific cause for dislike. He was a handsome, reckless sort of chap, who greeted folks cordially and spent money freely, and I was probably the only person in the plantation who did not express an unreserved liking for him. Possibly the favor to which Miss Vaughan regarded him may have had something to do with my prejudice, but that explanation would not cover my strong liking for Atherton. The latter drove in about dusk, and Miss Vaughan presented him to her father and Carruthers. The newcomer extended his hand graciously, and then dropped it with the exclamation, Hello, haven't we met before? I fancy not. I have no recollection of the pleasure, replied Atherton. Gad, you'd remember the meeting if you were the chap I took you for, said Carruthers. As he turned away, I noticed a peculiar smile on Atherton's face. Come up to my room after supper, my employer remarked to me. I have some work for you. The work, 
proved to be the manufacture of a detailed map of Magalloway Plantation, State of Maine. I had an old map of the plantation. This we enlarged to a scale of about one mile to an inch, and at Atherton's suggestion I indicated every brook and its most insignificant tributary within a radius of a dozen miles, together with the ranges of hills, timberland, roads, and trails. It was well into the morning ere the map was completed, and we breakfasted late. Carruthers and Miss Vaughan had gone away for the day. Drove off towards Upton, Landlord White said, in response to Atherton's casual inquiry. That being the case, Samuel, my employer remarked to me, we will follow the advice of one Walton and go a-fishing. An hour later found us on the Diamond River at The Rips, a mile and a half of swift water without a pool. Although I announced that here was the best fishing for a dozen miles about, Atherton left me with the remark, Fish then, and be happy, and went upstream. I followed leisurely, zigzagging in long reaches across the river because of the current. It was too bright for good fishing, but when I reached the head of the rips, I was satisfied with my catch, and here I made a discovery that caused me to reel up my line and go in quest of Atherton. Away up on the diamond, in a wild gorge through which the river is a roaring, foam-flecked torrent, I found him, perched on a monster boulder, drawing lazily on his pipe and examining the map we had made the night before. Any luck? I sang out. Not a rise. Guess all the fish are below. Perhaps you'd have better success if you took your bait box, I remarked, passing it over. Hello, did I leave that behind? he asked in some surprise. I hadn't missed it. We'll try the dead diamond tomorrow. But he didn't. For the next moment Carruthers was absent, and Miss Vaughan informed Atherton that he had gone away for several days on business. Then, remarked my patron with a dazzling smile, I suppose we may resume our studies in Chopin. During the next few days, there being no call for my services, I had nothing to do but wonder what sort of a game Atherton was playing, whether he was simply amusing himself with Miss Vaughan, or whether his intentions were serious. If the former, I told myself that I would call him to account the moment he ceased to be my employer. My regard for the young lady was as warm as it was unsuspected. My worldly experience had not been large. Certainly I never saw a man make love so rapidly, so dashingly, and irresistibly as Atherton, and I was merely a spectator at long range. There were rambles in the woods and fields in the forenoon, drives in the afternoon, and tete-a-tetes the remotest corner of the veranda when the moon silvered the drifting logs on the McGalloway. When the pair were about the hotel, the piano was going nearly all the time, and sometimes Atherton sang in a fine tenor voice, and, it seemed to me, with rare skill, songs that breathed of passion and romance, and which, from the brief but eloquent silence that usually followed them, must have had the desired effect. Coming round the corner of the house one evening, I heard the following fragment of conversation. No, Ned, dear. Dad would kill me if he knew I even hinted at it. 
for all he looks so good-natured, he is the most violent man in the world. There, don't rumple my hair. Mrs. White has the chief failing of her sex in an aggregated form, and if— At this point I beat an honorable retreat, with the reflection that Carruthers had better stay at home and looked after his fences before they were all down. Atherton spoke no more to me of Miss Vaughan. Once, when I complimented him jokingly upon his skill as a heartbreaker, he answered, with pretended solemnity, Samuel, I am heaving an anchor to windward. A remark which I gave up attempting to fathom after pondering it for the better part of the day. On the fourth day, Carruthers returned. Somewhat to my surprise, Atherton did not contest with him the possession of Miss Vaughan's society but resumed his fishing excursions. Yet he fished little or none. Towards sundown I usually found him at the head of the brook, dozing on the bank, or so engrossed with his thoughts that he did not notice my approach. This continued for the rest of the week. Monday morning I rose very early, as was my habit, and as I was feeling in unusually good spirits, I took a long stroll up what is known as the Black Brook Road, a corduroy affair formerly used for lumbering purposes. On my return, I digressed into the woods to follow what looked to be, but failed to prove, a deer track, and when I returned to the road I heard the sound of carriage wheels. A buckboard had passed, and as it disappeared around a twist in the road, I was certain that the travelers were Carruthers and Miss Vaughan. I was more certain, if possible, when on returning to the hotel, I learned that they had driven away shortly before. I mentioned the circumstance to Atherton, and he seemed pleased, for no apparent reason. Carruthers and Miss Vaughan did not return that night. I had an explanation handy, but as it was not asked for, I kept it to myself. On the following morning, Atherton observed to me, I believe there is only one more brook on our map to fish. Yes, Black Brook. We'll fish that today. A ten-mile drive brought us to our destination, a dismantled lumber works, deserted these many years. In the shed attached to the cabin, we discovered a buckboard. The horse that had drawn it was doubtless in a neighboring bit of pasturage. Atherton made no comment, nor did I. After caring for our horse and eating lunch, we jointed our rods and got on the brook. Atherton for once did not hurry away, but fished ahead, never more than a few rods away. He fished carelessly, however, as if his eyes and mind were bent on something besides his rod and line. To avoid a pool that defied our wading boots, we clambered up the right bank and struck the old lumber trail now so grown over that it was the blindest of paths. We had gone but a few yards when I heard an exclamation from Atherton, and when I came up to him, he was on his knees examining a mud hole in the path, caused by a spring that gushed from a little ledge at the right. On the farther side of the bog was a single boot print, so deep in the mud, however, that the size of the foot could only be guessed at. This would seem to indicate remarked Atherton, glancing up at me, that someone has passed this way since the snow went out. And this, I added, showing him the disturbed bushes at the left, 
would seem to indicate that some other fisherman had taken the trouble to go round. Well reasoned, Samuel, he smiled. Fishermen usually go out of their way to avoid a few inches of mud. Never mind the brook, but follow me. The exhibition of woodcraft that Atherton now displayed astonished me. Half a dozen times the trail led off into the mountain, and more than once, after clambered over a giant windfall, my eyes, trained by long experience, would have been bothered for a few minutes to discover the elusive track. But I had only to follow Atherton. He was never at fault. Suddenly the trail ran off into the brook, and there, apparently, was an end of it. Atherton noted, with evident satisfaction, vague bootprints on the bit of pebbly beach made by the receding waters. They led straight to the bed of the stream and vanished in the swift water. Atherton beat the bushes on the opposite bank, but found not a vestige of a trail. For fifty feet each way the bush was practically impenetrable. He tried the right bank, beyond where the trail had come down, with a like result. Then he lighted his pipe, threaded a worm on his hook, and moved slowly up the brook, casting occasionally, and I noticed that his gaze was exploring every foot of the banks. A bend in the brook brought us to as lovely a spot as it has ever been my pleasure to look upon. To our right, the mountain around which the stream wound straightened up for a height of two hundred feet, the top of the precipice being surmounted by a mass of jagged naked rock that hung, grim and threatening, over the gorge. Before us, a cataract of wondrous beauty flung itself from a shelf thirty feet overhead and plunged into a dark and frowning pool. To our left was the forest, rising tree upon tree to the brink of the cascade. Atherton stopped short, with an emphatic, Well, I'm damned. I suppose he was impressed with the majesty of nature's pictures, but he had not given it a thought. This black pool, which only a giant could wade, is the logical termination of the trail, he murmured. Mindful of my pledge to refrain from comment on his method of fishing, I kept silence. Wait for me a few minutes, he requested, swinging his basket from his shoulder. From the basket, in which there was not a fish, he took a pair of field glasses and a pair of lineman's spurs. He slung the glasses round his neck, fastened the spurs to his heels, and, skirting the pool, began the tedious and perilous ascent of the cliff down which the cataract tumbled. What the deuce did he want the spurs for, I wondered. I soon saw. After reaching the top of the ledge, he took a brief rest, and then began to move up the trunk of a lone pine that dominated the gorge. He had been gone nearly half an hour, when the rattling of loose stones told me that Atherton was descending. I watched him silently as he let himself down the cliff and regained my side, and then my curiosity slopped over. Mr. Atherton, said I, if you will raise the embargo on my tongue for a few seconds, it will afford me a large measure of satisfaction to remark that you are the damnedest fisherman I ever knew. Certainly, my boy, was his imperturbable response. And let me say, in return, that you are the damnedest map-maker I ever employed. Ah, uh, I remarked questioningly, not having an idea what he was driving at. Look, said he, taking the map from his pocket and spreading it out on a rock. 
Here is Black Brook, and here you have indicated this cascade, with the mountain on the right. On the left you have marked High Plateau, heavy timberland owned by Berlin Lumber Company and untouched for fifty years. From the spot where we stand to the old lumber works where we struck in on the brook, you have not indicated a single tributary. There is none. Pardon me, there must be. Near the top of that pine, I found a coin of vantage from which an unobstructed view was to be had, and I leveled my field glasses over the sea of treetops that stretches away to the northeast, unbroken, as far as I could see, by a single clearing, the great woods of Maine. But that there is a clearing I have reason to believe. My glasses caught, far up in the valley, for there is a valley, in spite of your map, a slender column of smoke, almost lost in the haze of the atmosphere. "'And what do you conclude?' I asked as he paused. "'That where there is a valley in this country there is a brook, and that brook, my study of the country convinces me, must join Black Brook between here and the old lumber works. "'I believe you are right,' I burst out suddenly, after racking my brains for several minutes. "'I remember my father speaking of a brook that came down from the north and joined Black Brook below the falls.' but it has been lost these five years. My acquaintance with Black Brook dates back as far as that, and during that period, in the score times I have fished through here, I recall no such tributary. Nevertheless, I believe there is one, and that we need not look for it below the spot where the lumber trail ran off into the brook. We retraced our steps slowly, Atherton keeping up a pretense of fishing. Suddenly he stopped and held up one hand, Listen, he cried. The brook at this point was broad and comparatively tranquil, and above the gentle swish of the current I heard the gurgle of swifter water. Atherton pointed a convincing finger at an object on the north bank, which had not attracted his serious attention when he passed up the stream. It was the heap of dead boughs familiar to fishermen who have toiled up streams by which has rung the woodsman's axe. This particular brush heap was fully a dozen feet high. About midway of it, a huge birch bough, which had been half torn from its parent trunk, hung down into the stream. Wait a minute, smiled Atherton as I started forward. I want to make this expose as dramatic as possible. He pulled himself up the bank and plunged into the bushes, where I heard him thrashing about. A suspicion of what I was later to know was flitting through my brain. Nature has been cleverly improved upon, Atherton reported. For fully fifty feet into the wood, a man could scarcely cut his way past this spot with an axe. And now, Samuel, he cried, drawing away the birchen bough, behold the opening of the lost brook trail. We peered into the aperture thus made, and saw the outlet of a good-sized brook. Atherton dropped the bough, threw himself on the bank, and motioned me to a seat at his side. Sam, my boy, said he, in such a grave voice that I looked up in surprise. Although I have your promise, given, perhaps, as you may have thought it was asked, lightly, to stand by me in any adventure that might present itself, you are at liberty now, if you so desire, to return to the hotel and leave me to finish the work I have begun. Yonder, pointing to the northeast, lies danger. Mr. Atherton, I replied, after a few moments of thought, 
To redeem the pledge I gave you, I only desire your assurance that the enterprise on which you are engaged is an honest one. That you may have freely. I do not care to say more until I am assured that I am not off in my reckoning. But, if I have correctly sized up the situation, I have desperate men to deal with, and it may be dangerous for you to be found in my company. I do not ask for your active support unless an emergency should require it. What do you say now? For answer, I extended my hand, which he gripped without another comment. Three o'clock, said Atherton, glancing at his watch and rising. We will leave our rods and baskets here. You have a revolver? I nodded. You may need it. And now, as he lifted the bow that screened the mouth of the new-found brook, leave faint-heartedness behind, all ye who enter here. For a few feet we had to almost wallow in the bed of the brook, but as we advanced, the aqueduct of boughs, as Atherton happily characterized it, enlarged sufficiently to afford a comparatively clear passage. So cunningly had nature been utilized that a fisherman blundering into the place would not have given its formation a second thought. On each side, small trees had been felled, boughs interlaced, and old logs carelessly piled, so that for fifty yards or more the brook and the valley through which it coursed were effectually concealed, as travel past the outlet was possible only in the bed of Black Brook or along its south bank. The aqueduct gradually expanded until we found ourselves in the woods beside as handsome a trout brook as the wilderness holds. As it had been a close stream for a number of years, I promised myself excellent fishing at some future time. For half a mile or more our only route was the brook, but search for a trail was finally rewarded, and our subsequent progress became as rapid as was consistent with the prudence exercised by Atherton. Softly, my boy, he called back to me. One could hear you coming a mile off. I am not an Indian, I replied, and at that moment I made a break that would have disgraced a tenderfoot. I caught my boot on a snag and fell headlong. Atherton laughed. "'You may be able to track a deer,' said he, "'but you'll never do to run down moonshiners. "'Slow up here,' he added, before I had opportunity to reply. "'I'm going ahead.' With that, he glided away as noiselessly as a snake. For two hours I trampled over the vilest of trails, clambered over fallen trees that crumbled into dust beneath my weight, and toiling through swamps into which I sank to my knees. In spite of Atherton's caution, I had traveled at a rapid pace, which finally told on me, and I threw myself down beside a spring to rest. As I resumed my tramp, I came upon a bit of paper fluttering from a raspberry bush. It was a message, and I comprehended its half-dozen words in some perturbation. Turn to the right, lay low. A partial explanation of this message was shortly presented by the forking of the trail. The main track kept along and across the brook, while the second trail led up the hill. I should not have detected this path had not a tall bush which screened it been bent down. The sun was declining, and twilight comes swiftly in the forest. I had not proceeded far when I saw through the bush the dispersion of a shadow which betokened a clearing and toward this I crawled on my hands and knees. 
the tension on my nerves was increased by the sight of a log shanty on the further side of the clearing. No smoke issued from the blackened chimney, and the place appeared deserted. There was an entrance midway of the shanty, and on each side a satchel's window. In the middle of the clearing the remains of a brush fire smoldered. As I peered forth upon this scene, the bushes to the left were parted, and Bill Vaughn stepped into the open. As he walked slowly towards the entrance to the shanty, he glanced in at the window. He started back, wheeled, and bounded noiselessly to a small shed, from which he emerged with a double-barreled shotgun. He again walked to the window, and I heard his voice, low and stern, "'Come out of there!' As he stepped back and threw the shotgun across his arm, Atherton stood in the doorway. I have never witnessed such magnificent nerve as the latter displayed. There was not a tremor in his voice, as, flipping the ash from his cigar, he remarked nonchalantly, "'Hello, Vaughn. Why this warlike demonstration?' An expression of frightful ferocity came into Vaughn's face. "'What in hell are you doing here?' he remanded, in a voice husky with passion. The reply came like a shot. "'I was looking for you.' "'What?' roared the outlaw, and I heard the hammers of his gun go back. I had drawn and cocked my revolver, and it was pointed toward Vaughn's bulky frame, but my hand shook so that if I had pressed the trigger, the result would not likely have been fatal. "'Yes,' continued Atherton, calmly, elevating his chin and blowing a cloud of smoke skyward. "'I thought it might interest you to know that the sheriff and a couple of deputies were on your track.' "'He lies!' shouted another voice, and I saw Carruthers, followed by Miss Vaughn, step into the clearing. "'He's a damn spy, Bill,' went on Carruthers, walking up to Atherton and staring into his face. "'I thought I knew you, and now I'm certain of it. You're the chap who put a ball through me in Bridgeport five years ago.' "'Under the circumstances, I am sorry I did not aim better,' said Atherton, with an exasperating smile. "'You'll be sorrier before long,' sneered the other. "'Keep him covered a moment, Bill, and I'll truss him up.' Carruthers went into the shanty and reappeared with a coil of rope, at one end of which he fastened a running noose. This he threw around Atherton's shoulders and dragged him ungently to the pine tree by which I was lying, scarce daring to breathe. When the trussing operation was completed, Carruthers walked away, and I thought it a seasonable time to let my employer know that the pledge I had given him was in good work and order. I reached forward a cautious hand, and gave the cab of his leg a reassuring squeeze. Blucher's battalions! I heard a murmur, and he called out cheerfully to his captors, Well, gentlemen, how long am I to be tied up here? You'll find out soon enough, flung back her brothers. Polly, put the kettle on, to Miss Vaughan. That young woman, from the moment of her appearance on the scene, had remained a silent witness of the dramatic affair, and I had well nigh forgotten her existence. As she moved toward the shanty, in obedience to Carruthers' careless order, she threw upon Atherton an expressive glance, in which I saw the anchor to windward which Atherton had cast on the moonlight veranda at Brown's farm. Help would have been forthcoming from that quarter, I felt assured. "'For God's sake, Sam,' whispered Atherton, "'cut this rope. "'These cursed mosquitoes are eating me alive.' "'All right,' I replied. "'But don't make a move until I get that gun.' 
Good boy, he muttered, comprehending my plan, which was to work my way around the clearing and capture the shotgun that Vaughn had stood against the end of the shanty. What's all that? called out Carruthers sharply, pausing in the act of throwing an armful of brush upon the smoldering fire. I was merely remarking, returned Atherton mildly, that the mosquitoes were devilishly thick. Carruthers chuckled. You ought to thank your stars that the blackfly season has gone by, said he. I drew my fishing knife, and with infinite caution cut through Atherton's bonds until they hung by a thread. Then I dropped on my stomach and crawled away in the brush. The crackling of the fire drowned the slight rustle that accompanied my progress. Vaughan and Carruthers sprawled on the ground beside the fire, smoking and conversing in low tones. Polly, her skirts tucked up in picturesque fashion, had put the kettle on, and it was singing merrily over the flames. I reached the desired point at last, and I was not a moment too soon. Goaded to desperation by the assaults of the mosquitoes, Atherton had raised a hand to brush them from his tortured face, and Carruthers' watchful eye had caught the movement. The latter sprang up and started toward the tree. I saw Atherton drop his hand behind him, and an instant later his arms straightened. Stop! he cried. With an oath, Carruthers leaped forward. There was a flash, and he went down like a log. With a bellow of rage, Vaughn turned for his gun but it was in my hands, and pointed at his heart. "'Sam Gilkey!' he cried in astonishment, and the reproach in his voice staggered me a bit. "'I don't know as much about this affair as you do, Bill,' said I. "'But you'll oblige me by throwing up your hands. This gun may go off.' Slowly his hands went up and came down with a jerk. Atherton had slipped up behind him and pinioned him with a rope that lately bound his own form. "'Blow his head off, Sam, if he moves,' said Atherton, twisting the cords about the giant's arms and legs. After Bone had been rendered null and void, I walked to where Carruthers lay, face down, and turned him over. "'He's dead,' I reported, and turned away, horror-stricken. "'He will not remark again on my shooting ability,' said Atherton coolly. Keep Fawn covered, Sam. He's a muscular devil, and that rope is none too strong. And now, Polly Edwards, taking a fishing line from his pocket and advancing to Miss Vaughn, who, when the shot was fired, had rushed from the shanty and stood transfixed with terror. Your hands, if you please. Ned! I shall never forget that cry. It pierced my heart like a knife blade. If Atherton was affected... There was no evidence on it in his quiet rejoinder. I regret, Polly, that my duty rises superior to my natural sentiments. Who are you? panted the girl, as Atherton wound the line gently about her arms. Edward Marlowe, United States Secret Service, at your service, he replied. Gad! I gave her credit for more nerve, he added quickly, as he caught the fainting girl in his arms. Get some water, Sam. I'll look after Vaughn. I was dazed and hot all over. I felt a bitter and unreasoning resentment towards Atherton, which was intensified as I watched him laving the unconscious girl's temples with the tenderness of a lover. Vaughn hardly needed watching. He sat by the fire, his head sunk upon his breast. Atherton bore Polly, for such it seemed was her name, to a nearby bank of greensward, and, taking off his coat, 
He rolled it up and placed it beneath her head. Feel all right now? He asked as she opened her eyes. She turned her head away. Atherton lit a cigar with a brand from the fire and turned to me. Sam, my boy, said he, that gentleman who was growing cold over yonder was one of the most dangerous counterfeiters that ever operated in the East. Five years ago, he was in the green goods business, and I helped to arrest him in Bridgeport. This fellow, with a gesture towards Vaughn, who never raised his head, is entitled to more consideration. He was let into it through his daughter, though I imagine the state will want him for that game warden affair. Polly here shelved the queer. In that shanty you will find a complete layout for the free coinage of silver at the ratio of sixteen to nothing. I had nothing to say. A sob from Polly broke the silence. Sam, said Atherton, see if you can find a lantern or two in that shanty. We shall have a devil of a time getting out of here. End of section one. Recording by Todd.